Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Talk Music Podcast. We're going to talk about everything and anything popular music. My name is Andrew Schulk. And I'm Tom Tremuth. We're going to talk about a Canadian gem that you might not have listened to or maybe listened to a lot way back in the day, but I have one picked out. On the Under the Radar slot this week, I'm super excited to talk about a new young upcoming artist that simply blew me away recently. And in the best of section, I'm going to look at a documentary that has blown my mind. And we also have a feature on the best vocalists where Andrew and I will argue over who is the best vocalist out there. So just sit tight and get ready to rock. Our first feature is going to be our deep dive into the world of management. And under that, we'll explore what makes a great manager and why do some of them actually really suck. We'll get into uh, also, believe it or not, that some managers out there are dishonest. Can you believe that, Andrew? Uh, I've heard a few of them have uh, had troubles with keeping the money or separating They actually moves. rip off artists. They it, do rip it off does happen. Yeah, I got so, a few examples of, of people who took the money first and ran and never gave it to the artist. Yep, so you can talk about that. For those people that don't know my background, I've actually been in management probably my entire life. On and off, I've been managing artists. So I'm going to say that Maybe I've managed 20 to 30 artists in my career, which is a fair amount. So I've definitely got some opinions on this about what makes a great manager. And I consider myself to be, uh, I guess, well, let's call myself a decent manager. I thought I did a pretty good job overall. You've had some um, hits. You've had some hits. <laughs> I'd say you're probably a very good well, manager. Well, I think I did my job as best as I could. You know, I was always learning. And that's one thing about management. You always have to be sort of on top of things. But what makes a good or great manager, there's no really school for it, Andrew. You know, there, there just isn't. You just can't go to a college and say, you know, there's rock and roll management there. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of it now where there's just overall info, but this is really something that um, you really got to learn by starting on the street and hanging out in bars and maybe picking up some some local band and just sort of learning the ropes. You know, there's no there's no school for this. I was going to say, do you think it's maybe dependent more on the artists? Like, some people need more managing than others. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, right now, it's a different world, but let's go back to, you know, when I started in the 80s. I think what attracted me was I just loved the idea of quarterbacking an entire career for an artist. Because you really got to look at yourself as you're dealing with all the day-to-day things, you're dealing with helping them guide their vision and their plan for what their goals are. Um, you have to sort of make them aware of all the pitfalls that are going to come up quickly, i.e. no money, <laughs> which is the, the big one immediately. Getting transportation together, you know, some of the basics. And you got to sort of uh, have a certain amount of skill set in talking to people, which I've always really enjoyed. And I think that's helped me a lot because I'm really a social person. So I love sort of hanging out, you know, and talking to other managers and asking how they did it. And I, I would find myself doing that kind of thing, you know? Well, I can also see that the, you know, the musicians, they're, they're doing what they're doing. They're, they're making music. I can see how there's a whole bunch of other things going on that they just don't have the time or ability to do. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I think in most cases, musicians should stick to just writing songs and being a musician. It is a, a real craft of management world. For example, when you're a good manager, and I'm going to talk about you know good or great, I think you have to facilitate certain things like songwriting. 
you know, some artists need help in songwriting, so you have to put together perhaps a, a co-writing partner. Sometimes you need to find maybe a publisher, you know, that can help put a writer together or or help fund their career to a certain extent. Sometimes they put in some money. There's all the, these things in the beginning that, you know, if you're songwriting, let's face it, if your songwriting isn't up to scratch, you ain't going anywhere anyway. <laughs> but how do you cross that bridge? Because well, if you have a musician to... with a lot of talent, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you sort of say, hey, you know what? If we brought in somebody, we can sort of make it this that much better. I mean, that was with Aerosmith in the, uh, the 80s and 90s. They yeah. had to bring in songwriters yep. to, you know, to get them. Well, I think hits. the key, you're, you're making a very good point there. The key to that was, of course, uh, who was a better front person than Steven Tyler? I mean, you know, you had a rock god there really standing in front of the band, you know, with a great voice and a great look. Till this day, he looks amazing. It's a fantastic, so, yeah. so in that case, somebody would go, all I need is a couple of hits, but I have everything else here. I've got a great front guy who sounds great. So I think you have to look as a manager, what do you have there to work with? So that's a good example of the songs weren't necessarily there and they needed co-writing. So there's a good manager coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey guys, sorry, your songs stink. Well, <laughs> However, I, I'm really interested. <laughs> well, I always go back to... Um, don't want to miss a thing, you know. They brought in uh, different writers for that. I know, uh, you know, Steve Tyler wasn't overly thrilled about it. No. Maybe Joe Perry wasn't, you know, extraordinarily no. happy either. However, that was a monster hit for those guys. And that monster, put them yeah. uh, probably in their top 100 songs of that decade or that year. You know, yeah. that song was crazy successful. Now, I'd say these days you're looking at a little different world out there. You're, you're, you're going to have a lot of the Billie Eilish's sort of that uh, already are great songwriters. And it's just being in the right place at the right time as a manager and holding your hand through that process of getting signed. But, you know, that, that happens so rarely. But for her, would it be, like you said, logistics versus songwriting? You know, and I could see if some managers help with the songwriting and getting placement is somewhere more logistics, you know, yeah. how to, you got to be in the right place and, you know, what shows you're going to do, what events you're going to do. Well, like I said earlier, that that is a, a rarity. What happens to most managers, let's be honest, most managers are starting, are not going to find uh, Billy Eilish, nor is Billy Eilish going to be interested in working with somebody that's brand yeah. new. So... I think what you do have to do is literally hustle out there as a manager, get those skill sets that I mentioned earlier. And you know what else is the most important I've always found for management? And this is what even Gene Simmons taught me when I was working with him. Live is everything. It really is. If you don't have a live agent, you're just not going to happen. You might be a one-hit wonder, but you have to get a great live agent together. And if a manager is able to do that and is well-versed in that world, you're off to the races. That's interesting. I mean, I, I when you're talking about that, I, I think of Irving Azoff. Yep. He brought the Eagles to, I mean, they have the number one selling record of all time, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they he, he brought them to huge financial rewards. Absolutely. You know, but did he get involved with the songwriting? I don't think so. No, but he was uh, already so well-versed in the business. And, uh, you know, another thing, managers have to wear, like, literally about 10 different hats. They have to be so knowledgeable about everything. So, again, a great manager to me is somebody who knows about publishing, knows about how to put a band on the road, knows something about finances, knows how to deal with people, knows how to deal with record labels, publicists. So let's talk now about what a bad manager is, because most of them are, frankly. 
because they think it's easy. They think that, oh, you know, I'm just going to find an artist and I'm going to make money. Hello. <laughs> nothing is easy. This no, is a really long easy. road, even for managers. And we'll, you know, I can talk a little bit about that later as I've got a little story to tell. But, you know, um, bad managers for me are ones that come in, promise everything and don't do anything, or they do one or two things and think it's management. And frankly, the artists in some cases are better themselves managing without a manager because some managers are just lazy and don't realize it really is not uh, a nine-to-five job either. This is this no. is a tough gig. And I think sometimes they, they get ahead of themselves. I mean, Noel Monk with Van Halen, that, that name just pops into my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He was let go early 1984, or yeah. just after that. And who stepped in? Ed Leffler, was it? No, actually, I don't remember that. Okay, because sometimes managers also are replaced <laughs> yes. fairly quickly. I guess what I was trying to say about Noel Monk was, um, I mean, he was the, the road manager for the uh, Sex Pistols. And then, you know, he got involved with Van Halen in mm -hmm. a similar sort of capacity. Sure. And then they basically didn't like their existing manager, so they uh, kicked him out. Yep. And then he took over. Yep. Was he a bad manager or not? I mean, one of the reasons why they got rid of him supposedly was... Um, he didn't bring in the band enough money in terms of uh, sponsorships. Okay, because uh, there was that story. In oh, the I didn't. I didn't uh, think of that word earlier. Sponsorships. There's another big one where we can pay a lot of bills. Exactly, and that's what happened. Where they he phoned up David Lee Roth and says, you know, I have uh, this company that wants to sponsor you, and and I can't remember who it was, but he says, no, it wasn't sexy enough. Didn't bring enough money, so I told him to go away. And then years later, Alex Van Halen sort of got involved in this, and they basically fired him, saying, you didn't bring us in enough money. Ah. So whether that's reason enough manager. to fire manager, I'm not sure. But yes, I forgot that sponsorships, even in the past and especially now, sometimes the entire concert tour is written out expense-wise by a, uh, a sponsor. So yeah, you're right. That's a very good point. Um, so continuing on the bad management. Um, yeah, so I've, I've met my share of, of some of them where you just know they're in it for the quick buck. There's no quick buck. Yeah. <laughs> Buy a lottery ticket or do something else. There's no quick buck. You got to stick it out unless you're extremely lucky and your, your artist writes a hit song. We know how hard that is, not only yeah. to write the song, never mind, then get it signed and promoted. So there's no easy way out. You have to love being in the business. Well, if we're going to talk about bad managers, I think we got to go back to the probably the king of them all is Alan Klein. I would argue that Colonel Parker gave him a run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> it would take That's it fifty percent. <laughs> but Alan Klein was in. Uh, that was 60s. unheard of. Fifty percent. You know what? You know what a standard management fee is, by the way. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Fifteen. Wow. I, I never charged more than fifteen. Yeah, but could you could you argue that Elvis wouldn't have gotten as <laughs> as big if Colonel Parker wasn't around? Well, that's the argument, isn't it? He had him doing all those uh, late night TV shows. I mean, he did every single TV show that was possible. Yeah. And then the movies. I mean, if you like the movies or not, I, I, I would say 10% of the movies <laughs> were somewhat okay. And yeah. The other 90% were questionable at best. However, he got paid for them, yeah. and he did well, and his popularity soared after that. Well, you, you could argue the point, yeah, 50% 50, 50 of a lot of money is still a lot of money. <laughs> it is. It was, that was a ripoff. It is undeniable. But, but, you know, that was back uh, 50s, early 60s. Yeah. That was... Well, a lot, you know. of, a lot of those uh, big-name artists did have issues with managers taking money, and here's one thing where they, they went to to take the money is publishing. Yes. Huge amounts of money stolen and skimmed off the top for publishing. Or, yeah. And this is how they do it. They're, they're, they're like, oh, well, you want to sign with me? Well, that's great. Of course, I have to have you know your publishing or a portion of it. 
And in those days, the artists didn't realize how important publishing was to keep. They do now. <laughs> well, Talk to was... Billy Joel about it. Billy Joel is a perfect example. He gave away some of his publishing when he didn't. He couldn't get uh, arrested out there. But that was his first few albums, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he wise up very. Oh, quickly. he wise. Yeah, most people wise up. Yeah. But there's situations still in place today where people did deals that they could never get out of, and the publishing is worth tens of millions. Well, i got to tell you a story then about Alan Klein, because this is a classic example of what what you're talking about. So Alan Klein, um, in the early 60s, Andrew Lou Goldham, who was uh, the Stones manager, realized he needed help with the Stones' finances, so he met Alan Klein, and he introduced him to Mick Jagger, and uh, Alan Klein was basically a guy that would get more uh, royalty rates, higher royalty rates for his clients. Mm -hmm. He did uh, Sam Cooke, he had a few other... Uh, I shouldn't say one-hit wonders, but they were. And then, uh, anyway, hooked up with the Rolling Stones. First thing he did with the Rolling Stones was negotiate a uh, $1.25 million advance from Decca Records at the time. It was a lot of money in those days. a lot of money because they weren't getting all the royalty payments. The royalty payments were too low. First thing he did with that check, he puts it in his own bank. (laughs) A little fine print of the deal was he only had to pay this to the band within 20 years. That's nice interest there, Andrew. And then... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I know. And then the, the story continues, or the plot thickens. Uh, shortly after, he convinces the Rolling Stones that uh, to reduce their tax liability, he is then going to buy out all of their publishing and run it through his own company called the ABKCO Company, or the Allen and Betty Klein Company. Yeah, So of then he owned their publishing. Well, Andrew, this is why Mick Jagger took over all the business later on. Oh, in, in 1970, Jagger figured out that they were getting enormously ripped off by yeah, this guy yeah. and tried to get rid of them, but they couldn't break the contract. And then the story gets even crazier. They fired him. They basically said, you know, you're ripping us off. You're not giving us royalty payments. You've stolen our publishing. And you've stolen this, you know, uh, one and a quarter million dollar amount. So then he released the album Hot Rocks. I don't know if you remember that. No. Hot Rocks, 1964 to 71. This was the biggest selling Rolling Stone album of the time. And then after that, he released more Hot Rocks, big hits and phase cookies. And then he realized when they're recording Exile on Main Street, that some of the tracks from those sessions were his, because that went uh, up Mm -hmm. at the time he was fired, and then he released Metamorphosis. And this guy released four more greatest hits Rolling Stones albums. So in essence, he was making more than they were. That's not a good look for for the manager to the artist. Did you not? This continues to this day. They had to sue him every few years in the 70s and 80s. Well, like I said, the artists were very naive in those days, and publishing was was sort of, what's that? You know, I don't even know what it is. Some artists still don't know what publishing is or what it means, but most of them are smart enough to at least ask or look it up online, which at least you can now look it up. In those days, where would you go to ask about publishing? It's true. Yeah, yeah, you, you didn't know. Well, the Stones still to this day don't own those uh, recordings up no. until 1970. That's no. why they don't put out those greatest hits packages very much. But what you're talking about is just one example of so many that went on. We could go on for hours, literally, about ripoffs. And so, hence, managers, if you don't want to get ripped off by managers, anybody listening, do not give up your publishing. You don't have to. You can survive now and get a deal and just say, sorry, my publishing's not available. Uh, unless you want to pay me a million dollars or more then let's discuss. So why is it people are all selling their publishing now then? Well, uh, I'm going to say, uh, for me, just looking from the outside in, I think a lot of the artists are, are, (laughs) sorry, they're getting so old that they want to just take care of their family and just get it done now while they're alive. When you're talking two or 300 million 
dollars coming in and you're 70 or whatever, you're probably looking at, hey, you know, my family could use the dough. Let's get this done now while I'm alive so there's no complications. You know, it's not like they're they're hurting for money anyway, but they don't want to have it sitting in somebody else's bank account like some major company. They want to sell it, get that money, and put that money in their own bank as opposed to it just sitting out there and then their kids have to deal with it. That's what my read on it anyway. But if we go back to Colonel Tom Parker, mm-hmm. I mean, Elvis sold all his publishing, I think it was in 1973. Uh-huh which I thought was very unusual because, I mean, they were smart on one hand. I mean, I know 50% is 50%, Mm -hmm. but if any song that they recorded, they were going to own that publishing. They were not going to record anything unless they owned the publishing. And then he goes and sells all the publishing. Yep. I mean, he's one of the most covered artists of all time. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's uh, in the top 10 of artists covered. But yet he never wrote any of those songs. I'm going to say this to sort of come to a wrap-up here soon, is if anybody out there is thinking, do you need a manager or not, I'd say behind every, almost every successful act is a great manager. I'd like to know somebody that has made it without a great manager, so feel free to, to let us know if you know of any out there. Okay, so now we're going to talk about... Uh, how do you get noticed out there? How do you get signed? What's your first break? Kind of an interesting subject to tackle. I, I think guess it's to, very varied, too. I mean, everybody has a completely different story. Yes, and the context that I'm going to talk about is that, you know, many years ago, and I'm going to say <laughs> many, many years ago, uh, in the 80s and 90s, acts would get signed you know, with A&R guys, and for people that don't know what an A&R guy is out there, it's a talent scout that works for a record company. Artist and repertoire, right? Correct. I used to be one myself for a major label um, in the 80s, and, and that era was about going to clubs, little tiny clubs in some cases, and hoping nobody else was there because there were CDs being floated around the world, cassettes, uh, nothing on the computer. <laughs> it was, you know, people were, were overnight mailing stuff, you know, from Australia to New York, check out this band. It was crazy times, but everybody was lurking around in the, in the club. So I'm going to tell a little story about myself and my label called Hypnotic that I put together and how I was able to sign an act that actually made some noise. And this is a, still a successful artist out in the world right now. Cool. So one day in the 80s, after I started my own label and I had A&M as my partner, I found myself in a little tiny, tiny bar in Queen Street here in Toronto. And I won't mention the name of the bar. I think there was maybe five people in the room, three bartenders, and I think the sound guy and one person, maybe the artist's girlfriend, maybe, and me. So, And I, I had, believe it or not, just stumbled in because I was out there looking for talent and I just had my own label. And this is what everybody did in those days. So I'm staring on stage. I walk in and there's a guy on stage. Guy's playing is incredible. He's really bluesy, fiery, you know, lots of technique. Loud as hell. Loud as hell. Loud as hell. He looks like a million bucks. He's got an Armani suit on, which was very bizarre to see. Slick back hair. It looked amazing. And the presence that was coming off stage, I could not deny. I was mesmerized and I was there by myself. So I approached this guy and I say, hey, you know, this is really incredible like who are you (laughs) and and why are you here and can i help so the guy's name was gordy johnson and he was fronting a band called big sugar wow 
So as the story goes, this particular guy, Gordy, all of a sudden, you know, became my focus and I was able to get A&M super excited, who was my partner. And next thing you know, we're signing a deal up in my studio area that I had a studio at this time. I'd also put together on uh, Spadina, as a matter of fact, here in Toronto. Next thing you know is I'm also fairly successful producer at that time. I had done some records that had hit the charts. So I said to Gordy, is it okay if I produce the record? And he goes, sure, let's, let's do it. So I set up in the studio tables and chairs, and I brought in beer, I brought in glasses, and I, I said, Gordy, you got some friends you want to bring in here? Let's make this studio like a bar. Let's pretend you're on Queen Street again. Great and idea. Let's make sure the sound is as good as it can be, knowing that some people might hiccup or clink a glass or whatever. So the story is, and it really happened, is we recorded that first Big Sugar album live off the floor with, I'm going to say, 40 or 50 people in there. And the band, <laughs> the band members were literally a foot or two away. Was and it, it was one live? of the best experiences yeah, I've ever had. And I ended up producing the record, which got me some, some uh, critical acclaim as well doing that. And so this is the way that Gordy Johnson and his career officially started with me finding him in that little bar, signing him to my tiny, tiny label, and then A&M taking over the bulk of the work because I was really just, you know, a few people that I had in my office. And um, next thing you know, the next record went gold on my label called 500 Pounds. Then he graduated, uh, I think the record after that, he graduated to A&M, and he's still playing the today, and he's been playing with all sorts of super incredible musicians around the world ever since. He's a big producer now, too. Big I producer, yeah, very successful. So, so there you go. So there is the way that Axe got signed, and that's my own personal story about it. But that, to me, is almost the... Uh the beautiful side of the music business that, you know, it was. miracles like that do happen it where was. you walk into a bar and you, you well, see both this of us, you know, we were, we were both looking for each other in essence. I was looking yeah. to get going and he was looking to get going and, and that doesn't happen anymore. So no. putting, putting things back into context is at that time there was no social media. I couldn't look up how many Facebook likes he had or, or how active he was on Instagram. I didn't even know what yeah. it was. It didn't even exist. So what did exist in those days is a little bit of magazine stuff. You know, Now Magazine here in Toronto was, was kind of okay yeah. to, to check stuff out. There was a little bit of TV exposure, not like now or it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but th this was really a case of me scouring the clubs and scouting them out, which people used to do at, at, all around the world. It doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, you mentioned Now Magazine. And I, I would say, you know, every, every town has one of those. You know, New York has they one. They do, yep. You know, uh, Vancouver has the Georgia Strait. I mean, yep. I, I've often, you know, with my personal experience, that was the, the gatekeeper for shows, you know, before, you know, oh, social oh, when media. They were when you could find them on every street corner, Andrew, I was running, running to get the copies on yeah. a Thursday morning because they, they would be tastemakers, and we're going to get oh, into totally that agree. in another, another program, They had all the, the shows that were happening at, yep. uh, you know, the small venues like Sneaky D's, like Lee's Palace, and say, you know, who was coming up. And they had decent music people behind them that were actually yeah. doing what they, what they were doing. They had and good with, writers there, yeah. too, yeah, and, did, and, yeah. you know, you trusted their judgment musically. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I like, you know, I grew up more with punk rock, more sort of underground stuff, and you know, that's the only place you could find that stuff. Very true.
Okay, now I'm going to do what I call a continuation of that theme of getting noticed in the music business. But it's going to be a little different now where I'm going to talk about uh, myself as a manager, how I stumbled upon an act in uh, the Hamilton area of Ontario where I live. And this is going back again into the 80s, I think it is, or was it the 90s? I forget. <laughs> Somewhere in there. It all happened so fast. It did. It did. I'm going to talk about how luck can also play a significant role in getting noticed, because this is a kind of a cool story. This is about an act called Kazer, K-A-Z-Z-E-R, and how I got him signed to Epic New York, and it was probably the biggest deal they've done of all time. Wow. It was a direct deal, and I'm going to tell you how it happened. Whilst I was living in the Hamilton area, somebody tipped me off about a, a white rapper, and this is going back to when Eminem was number one everywhere. So I thought, well, okay, if one white rapper can do well, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I found another one here. <laughs> let's, let's see what happens. So, so Kazer was a guy that was local, and the reason I really liked them was in those days, Andrew, they were, it was just the start of singing choruses. Remember that? Everybody was rapping everything first, yeah. and then it switched over to, oh, let's rap the verse, but now let's sing the chorus. So what caught me with this guy Kazer was, oh, all of the, the choruses were being sung by this guy, and he had a decent voice. So I said to Kazer, let's, let's do a three-song demo, which we did. So he comes to me one day, and he said, Tom, you know, I know somebody kind of in New York. I go, okay. He works at a gym, and he happens to know the A&R talent wife of somebody who works in New York. So I said, okay, let me get this straight. You know somebody kind of who knows somebody kind of, <laughs> and that's an and the A&R, okay. In other words, this is, <laughs> this is a real long shot uh, of anything. So, okay, I said, send it down, and I forgot about it. So Kazer comes to me, I guess, three or four weeks later, and says, Tom, guess what? I just had a call from the front office of, of Epic New York yesterday, and they said they want to see me and you in their office tomorrow morning. And I said, say that again? That cassette that you sent got listened to? And he goes, yes, here's what happened. The guy who I kind of knew gave the cassette to the A&R guy's wife, who loved it, but she knew her husband would never listen to it unless he put it in his car. And then she hoped that when the cassette was in the car, he wouldn't eject it. So what happened is when he was in a rainstorm and he had nothing to do, he, he decided, well, I'll just play it. And he loved it, and he literally got on his phone and called us. And we signed, as I said, probably the biggest deal of all time for a new that artist to Epic too, New York. Didn't it? Yeah, uh... the song ended up being all over the Olympics. It was in the Italian job. It went uh, all over the, the, the Europe. It was a minor hit at radio, but it made a lot of noise. Yeah. And still, to this day, it's, it, it gets a lot of play. But that, that was how that happened, that little cassette. So... Was there luck involved in that? Of course there was. That, that's my point is you just never know. You, you shouldn't ever leave any stone unturned. Like, just go for it. Because, you know, at least I didn't say, no, don't send it. I said, sure, send it. Thinking nothing's going to happen. But it no, did. That's a great story. So this Canadian gem that we're going to talk about today is Prism's Armageddon, which is the band's third album. Oh, classic rock. Whoa. Yes. Nice I'm actually going back into the, uh, the Canadian West Coast rock and roll 
of um, Loverboy, Chilliwack, Streetheart, and Prism. Okay. So this album, as I said, was released in 1979. It was the third album. And there was a lot of special stuff about this album, which is why I picked it out. And I thought the first thing about this album, which I'm going to get into a bit later on, was uh, it was uh, produced by none other than Bruce Fairburn. Oh, wow. Bruce Fairburn. You could talk about this guy for a long time. Yes. Bruce Fairburn. He went on to have numerous massive Rock royalty. I mean, this guy... He produced uh, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet in New Jersey, massive, crazy sellers. He also produced uh, Van Halen's Balance, which was a uh, so-so, but he also produced uh, Aerosmith, Pump, Get a Grip, and Permanent Vacation, which are, uh, if I'm not mistaken, probably the band's biggest sellers of all time. But I think the, the apex of Bruce Fairburn has to be ACDC's The Razor's Edge, because that brought ACDC back to you know, where they were, you know, following Back in Black. I mean, yeah, that was a, a monstrous hit, heard all over the world. It just was a massive uh, seller for them. Uh, he also got producer of the year for this album, for uh, for Armageddon. Two other interesting names that were involved with the production of this album was none other than Brian Adams. Oh, geez, never heard of Brian him. Adams. <laughs> you know Brian Adams? You heard of that guy? Uh, kind of. Maybe he's, he has uh, a one he's, or, he's had a one bit or two of songs. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was the... Uh, Strangely enough, he handled the uh, songwriting and the arranging of this album, Brian Adams, and his partner, Jim Valance. It doesn't get any better than that. For no, writing. no. And uh, he actually wrote or co-wrote three of the album's songs. And uh, another interesting name on this album, which uh, perhaps will contribute to its massive success, was uh, Bob Rock. He was the... Recording oh. engineer on this album. Yes, he's done rather well, too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you heard of Bob Rock. I think he was in a band called the Paolas Once Upon a Time. So, yeah, that's, you know, when you put names like that together for an album, they're going to produce something that's going to be amazing. But, you know, it, it all does come down to... How well did the album do, do you know? It must have they sold least... 200,000 copies oh, in Canada. Oh, excellent. That's great. So, yeah, they did pretty well. That's double platinum here. That's yeah. That's fabulous. But, uh, I mean, you know, producers aside and all those other people aside, it, you know, it does come down to the songwriting and the band and whatnot. So, so I'll tell you why I think this album is great. This album is great because it has an amazing sound to it. You know, back in the day, in the late 70s, 1979, a lot of hit and misses, but this album, it, it rocks. It, it, it has Coming Home, the first song off number, uh, side A, you know, it has a great sound. The production is awesome. How many ballads? <laughs> Hopefully not many. One or two. Some of, the, some of those albums get ruined by, you know, too many ballads. No, you're right. Actually, uh, Night to Remember is a classic slow song. That was the uh, quite successful ballad off that album. Another thing that I found incredible about this album was the drums. Uh, you didn't have drums like that back then unless you were listening to, to Chic or some, you know, what a big disco band. Big, big, big drums, big sound. I mean, the beginning of Mirror Man, I remember vividly as a kid when that started, that big... Well, you know, Andrew, that, that was the era of if your drums don't sound big, and I mean really big, big, you ain't happening, the record's going to die, it won't even get on the air. Well, the drums on this album, I mean, Mirror Man, is that, that drum opening, I, I still listen to this day, and you want to like, you know, crank up the volume. Crying shame of the whole situation, I think, was uh, the lead singer, Ron Tabak, 
Yeah, what happened to him? Is he still around? He was no, he died. Oh, okay. He, uh, I think he was uh, classically trained, or he was uh, operatic, tra- operatically trained, or something like that. But he had a lot of training as a vocalist. And then in 1984, he uh, he went out to to ride his bike, and he was in a snowstorm, and he got hit by a car. And then um, they were taken to the hospital, and they thought he was uh, inebriated, so they took him off to jail, where he uh, basically died. Oh, so that's a, kind of a sad, yeah, sad ending a sad there. Story, yeah. But I, I, I can't talk about his vocals enough. I mean, if you really listen to this album, you hear Axl Rose. I shall check it out again. Okay, now for our under the radar slot for this week. I'm really excited, actually, to talk about uh, a brand new 16-year-old artist called Allie Cribb. She's influenced by Ella Fitzgerald and Joni Mitchell, and I really think she's one to watch. What caught my attention, actually, was not only her age, of course, at 16, but uh, her voice is great, and she has some real maturity to write a song called Bigger. Once everybody checks it out, you'll see what I mean. It just has some really, really great lyrics, which I find really tough to do when you're 16 years old. So uh, I was really impressed by that. So the story on her is a friend of mine who's really into music tipped me off about her uh, just recently. And to be honest, Andrew, you know I hate lots of things. I hate most things that are sent to me. (laughs) Probably 99.9% suck. But this really stuck out to me right away as I think Ellie has tremendous potential. So in my my humble opinion, she's already got the goods to get noticed immediately. And uh, if this helps a little bit out there for her, that's great because she, she deserves it. So a little bit about her background is she started showcasing, uh, she's from the Toronto area, by the way. She started showcasing at age eight. And in the last couple of years, she's already been doing open mics in Toronto and Halifax. She was also chosen recently to be part of something called Talent Nation. And she was also on the prestigious songwriter circle hosted by East Coast legend Bruce Guthrow. And furthermore, I forgot to mention that two of her songs were actually um, finalists in the International UK Young Songwriters Competition, which is kind of a big deal. The songs are Bigger and another song called California. So please go check her out. She's got two videos and a few songs up on YouTube, and she also does a cover of the song Creep by Radiohead, which is great. And you can find her at uh, Allie Crib. that's A-L-L-Y-C-R-I-B-B.com, or type that in also for Spotify to check her out. And uh, I know you'll everybody out there will enjoy her. Right on. That sounds amazing. So this week's Rock Doc recommendation is The Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. This is a fantastic documentary for a whole bunch of reasons. The first is that this was footage taken from a music fest that ran in uh, uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival from uh, June 29th to August 24th in uh, 1969. It was directed by Amir Questlove Thompson, and this year received a slew of awards ranging from uh, the Sundance to Grammys to Oscars for Best Documentary. Everywhere it's shown, it did amazing. This music fest that was recorded, once they were aired, the footage was uh, put in a basement and forgot about for 50 years. 
What is so special about this documentary is the the cast of characters. This documentary was eclipsed by Woodstock. I mean, Woodstock happened at the same time, but Woodstock just got incredibly more popular. But this coming out now, uh, you know, even though it's it, this concert took place a long time ago, is it? Do you think it's going to elevate all these artists and catalogs again? Like, is it becoming super successful out there? You know. I would hope so because I thought I haven't per- seen it yet, but I, I'm dying to now. Oh, it's phenomenal. Uh, I thought the performances uh, eclipsed that of Woodstock. Oh, okay. You know, I thought, you know, Sly and the Family Stone did a fantastic performance at Woodstock, but here it was even better. You know, Stevie Wonder was you know phenomenal. You know, to see uh, Nina Simone, you know, the Staples Singers, Gladys Knight and the Pips, all these guys performing on a beautiful, colorful stage, sunny weather. It was almost to me like the the opposite of Woodstock in so many ways. <laughs> okay. And uh, the other thing was, they looked great. Is it all R&B-ish, like soul? Uh, like all soul music. All soul, All Got soul it. music. Okay. But the thing is, as I was saying, they look great. They have great costumes. They they look hip. Even the crowd, you, it just is like the opposite of Woodstock. Yeah. Is, uh, everything that Woodstock wasn't. And wow. the performances were great. And the footage was amazing because they... Um, they were right on the stage. With I'm assuming the, band. the sound quality was also top notch. Sound quality is top notch. I right. mean, everything is uh, incredible about this, and it's interspersed with you know a lot of talking heads about the time, and a lot of the performers are talking now about the performances back then. But it's uh, it's it sounds it's, like it's going to stand the test of time. I hope so. But uh, like I said, it won uh, it's won uh, dozens of awards for the best documentary, so it is uh, definitely something worth checking out. This week, we're going to continue on our best of series. Yay, I can't wait. <laughs> I know. And uh, and we had a uh, quite a, a bit of a fiery discussion last week when we were talking about keyboardists. We did. We had some uh, disagreements. There's more coming. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'd like to get back to that uh, subject of uh, keyboardists because... It got me thinking a lot of other keyboardists that I hadn't, you know... Uh, yeah, because you know. your choice was bewildering. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, uh, keep going. so this week we're going to do... Uh, we're going to argue about best vocalist or who our preferred vocalist is at this time. Yes, we are. Okay, so who's so, going uh, first? <laughs> uh, I will go first. You go first. And my choice for best vocalist is... Drum roll, please. None other than Adele Laurie Blue Adkins. Uh, pardon me, <laughs> Adele. Everybody knows Adele. Oh, oh, you went. Oh, I thought I thought the Adele was a first name to some longer name. No, that's oh. her whole name. Adele. Oh, I see. Uh, Laurie Blue Adkins. Oh, yeah. I picked me. Adele. I didn't because, know that. Um, I watched a show with uh, mm-hmm. my daughter the other day, and it blew me away. I I knew that she was a phenomenal singer. I didn't realize. She was a, such a a live concert you just saw. It was a live show. Yep, it was a, it was a DVD. Sorry. Yep, yep. But it uh, it blew my mind. I thought, wow, she has a vocal power of 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 I would say the power of Freddie Mercury. You know, she has wow. she has pipes. She has I don't know. She's a belter. Mm-hmm. She she can kick it out. Her range is phenomenal. I found annoying was her between song banter, but you know that's that's well, another that's something can be worked on. But you know the songs. I mean, uh, what, the song that really knocked my socks off was uh, the uh, Bob Dylan cover "Make You Feel My Love." 
Uh, I mean, I uh, Garth Brooks also did a cover of that, and I thought, no way did his version even touch hers. And, you know, I, I love Bob Dylan, as, as you know. Uh, I do And know. Uh, We'll probably I, have a special show just about Bob Dylan I know. We, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, all her albums, the all four albums she's done, I think are all fantastic. They're flawless. So, in other words, 100 million people aren't wrong. <laughs> Not with Adele. Not with Adele. I well, think, you know what's uh, always surprised me while we're on that subject is why the record companies haven't tried to develop other Adele's. I mean, this is sort of a common thing talked about. I mean, she is phenomenal, but is she the only one like that on the planet that can sing like that? There, I think there's other ones that have potential. I'm always surprised because she's extremely successful, and yet there's no other Adele's coming up, is there? No, that's true. I mean, I've heard said that she sort of followed Amy Winehouse, but I, I really think that they're a different genre of vocalists. Yeah. I thought, you know, Amy Winehouse definitely came from more of the jazz and the blues. True. Whereas Adele, I just think, is an acrobatic singer. I mean, she has a voice like no other. I mean, she could sing anything. I'm, yeah. I'm going to say a little more sophisticated, too, where yep. Uh, yep. Winehouse, for me, was a bit more down and dirty-ish with the bluesy thing. And I think also... You know, she. I've heard her reference, uh, you know, Roberta Flack as an influence. I've heard her reference uh, Ella Fitzgerald as an influence. You know, I mean, she had a lot of these sort of very, very powerful vocal, female vocal singers as mm-hmm. an influence. Whereas For sure. Whereas I think maybe a little more broad than Amy Winehouse, and I'm not trying to say that as any kind of an insult to Amy Winehouse. I've got... Uh, more respect for her than, than anything, but I, Adele, I still think, is uh, is a vocalist yeah. like no other around. Now, I'm Adele. curious why you chose a female, or should we broaden this out to best female, best okay, okay. male? Because I went to a male vocalist, although maybe we should broaden it. I went to rock because perhaps that's what I was brought up on, and you know, I, Adele, I became a fan of you know just in the last few years. So, And again, to me, it's so hard to pinpoint when you say great vocalist like what genre you know like i i sort of mm-hmm. went to two genres i went to what i would call a great rock singer and then i went to a prog singer because i love prog because right. they're kind of two different worlds and i could have also went to a straight pop singer so you know what i mean it's it's this is a really hard category it is a, it is a tough one so what i what I, who i chose for for rock was chris cornell from uh, soundgarden right. so to me, his voice has just got that special heaviness, but just got that character heaviness without going overboard. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, when he was fronting Soundgarden, it just drew me in, even though the band was fairly complex and, you know, wasn't the easiest to get into. But his voice immediately stuck out to me. And, and I also did see him live once and he blew me away. It was that club by the water here in, in Toronto by the waterfront where it was probably in the front row. Cool house? RPG? Yeah, cool house, yeah. yeah. And I think I was maybe even in the front row and I, I just, I, you know, my hair was standing on end. Was it that was solo just, or is that with... No, with, uh, uh, it was, it was when he was doing his solo stuff, his solo. Oh, wow. And his first solo album I think was great and then he went pop. He tried to go into the into the pop world and he, and he failed miserably and he yeah. actually admitted that too. So anyway, he was my ch- choice but I also, a special mention has got to go for me to you know one of the best of all time, which is Robert Plant. I don't know that anybody could touch him from that era that I was brought up, and you know I'm not sure there's a, a bad note of singing on any Led Up album. If there is, point it out to me. I think he has to be mentioned. And another another one I'm going to give a special mention to. Also saw it live a few times was the Who. Roger Daltrey also I think deserves to be up there. 
just still maybe five years ago at his age, he was belting it like like he was a kid. It was phenomenal. Yeah, I saw them uh, at uh, the ACC. Three, yeah. I might have been at that Who show that you I mean, the guy was, was at least in his 60s at that time. Yeah. I think he's seven, his 70s now. Yeah. So I, I've got to make a, a mention to him. And then my, I had to go into Prague Rock. You know how much I love Prague. <laughs> <laughs> so guess who my choice is? Yay, John Anderson. John Anderson. And here's my best story, as I have actually met him and had lunch with him. Oh, Check wow. it out. Uh, when I used to go to Con every year for the music conference, this is earlier on when I used to go, and I saw this guy sitting over by the waterfront. I go, it can't be John Anderson. I was like the biggest yes freak. And I go, it's John Anderson. And he's sitting there by himself. I had enough nerve. I actually went up to him. I don't remember what I said, but he said, oh, you want to sit down and join me? And I was kind of like, you know, I, I couldn't talk. I sat down with him after I think I'd just seen him, you know, play a sold out show at Maple Leaf Gardens or wherever it was in Toronto or whatever. And the guy was the nicest guy. He wanted to know about me and he said, Yeah, you know, I just live up the hill here in a place called Vaunts, which I'd actually ironically been to the night before for dinner, this magical little town. Yeah, and I just come down here, you know, to the waterfront to have lunch and, you know, thanks for joining me and I hope to see you at a show. What's his voice? Exactly like you would think when Is he it? talks. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite high then. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And to this day, I still remember that moment. You know, there's moments in time that are etched with people that you sometimes, you know, are dying to be with. It was that, um, what do you call it, that, that, that moment where, hey, who do you want to, you know, have lunch with in your, in your life while you're still around? You know, he, his name would have been near the top for me as one of those. Wow. Yes, I didn't have him over to dinner at my house, but being on the waterfront with him you know just me and him together and shooting the breed we must have been there an hour just talking about all sorts of shit wow again and a great voice his voice is just so it is phenomenal phenomenal and unique And that brings us to the end of episode number four of the Talk Music Podcast. My name is Andrew Schalk. And I'm Tom Chamruth. And thanks again for listening also from myself. Stay tuned for more episodes coming up. Mm-hmm.